Amen. Good word. Open your Bible with me to Ephesians 5 and John 15. We'll read there together in just a few moments. I hope you brought your Bible with you. Ephesians 5 and John 15. Several weeks ago, we started this message series, Life in the Spirit, and looked at the person of the Holy Spirit. We looked at uh, the spiritual birth, being born of the Spirit. We uh, then shifted to what Paul said to the Corinthians about us being temples of the Spirit and worshiping in the Spirit. And last Sunday uh, from Scriptures on uh, life in the Spirit, freedom and liberty in the Spirit from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And this morning, I want us to look at a command in the Bible regarding the Spirit that is issued to all of us. A command for all of us. It's a spiritual command. It's not a suggestion. And it's issued to all followers, all disciples of Jesus. And the assumption behind this command is there is this expectation that it is to be obeyed. Um, those of you having served in the military, when going through basic training, you learned a core value of the military, and that core value is drilled to, into every soldier right at the start that there is a chain of command. And with that chain of command, uh, authority is established so that when orders are issued, they are not to be questioned, they just are to be obeyed. But when you're deployed, obeying orders is a matter of life and death. And so it's a common understanding for every command, for those who serve in the military, to be obeyed, for those commands to be followed. Jesus if you think about it, when he issued forth the great commission, right, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to, in some translations, and this is the way I learned it ever since I was growing up in church, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Well, I think a better translation of that is teaching them to obey to obey every command that I've issued to you. So all of the commands are to be obeyed. That's the expectation. And this morning I wanted to look at one particular command regarding the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And that is from Ephesians 5 verse 18 where the command is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. I actually preached on this text a year ago, but I want to approach it this morning a little more specifically as it relates to living in the Spirit, life in the Spirit. And so if you have your Bible with you, read with me starting in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with the 15th verse. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation or debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. We pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would sanctify us, set us apart in your word and truth, that we would walk in wisdom, being filled with your spirit, bringing honor and glory to you and bearing much fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So look at this command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. What I want to do this morning is to answer two questions regarding this command. The first question is, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And then second, how do you do that? How do we do that? Uh, what's the pathway to being filled with the Holy Spirit? So two questions. First, so what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? The text here in verses 15 through 17 is Jesus is describing really the context, how to maximize your Christian life. And if you look at, if you have your Bible open, those verses 15, 16, and 17, he, come, he conveys several things. And I'll just kind of summarize these for you first. I want to paraphrase it. He says, first, be wise, don't be foolish. Don't acquire just Bible knowledge, but instead put it into practice. That's wisdom. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Taking the Word of God, putting it into practice. So that's a step to being wise. And then second, he says, redeem the time. Redeem the time. In other words, be stewards. Don't squander. Don't waste time. We're living in evil days, evil times. And so then time needs to be treated as a precious commodity. Don't sit around in front of the television all day or just stay on the cell phone all day, but redeem the time. Be good stewards of the time. And then third, he says, understand what God's will is. So be wise, walk in wisdom, be a good steward of time and understand God's will. So develop knowledge of the Bible for the purpose of developing clarity on the mind of Christ. This command then is in this context to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which is certainly God's will. Not to negatively, not to get drunk with alcohol, but he says positively be filled with the Holy Spirit. And this command is in a, a, a verb tense called the present tense, which means it's continuous. So it could be translated, be filled and filled and filled and filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a continuous tense. Paul contrasts drunkenness with being filled with the Spirit. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2 where the disciples were remaining in Jerusalem as Jesus said, and he said, stay there and tarry there and, and until the Spirit comes, and when the Spirit comes, to come upon you and receive power. So in Acts chapter 2, when that was fulfilled and the Holy Spirit came upon the church, indwelled believers, you remember it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and many of those of the general population, those who weren't believers, when they saw what was happening, heard some things, the Bible says many of the general populace accused 
Christ's disciples as being drunk. Do you remember that? And then Peter stands and preaches and says, Brethren, let it be known to you, these people are not drunk. It was like noon, <laughs> the middle of the day. They weren't drunk, he says. But this was uh, a fulfillment of what Joel said, that the Spirit of God would come upon them and fill them with the Holy Spirit. Why do, why do people drink alcohol? Why do people drink alcohol? Yeah, some would say, well, they just drink it for the taste. And that may be true. But I would propose to you most people drink alcohol for a happy hour. To get happy. To feel better. How many of you want to be happy? I, I remember reading a, uh, some research that was done among students, teens, several years ago. And the number one thing that was the most important thing to teenagers was they wanted to be happy. They wanted to be happy. It was kind of a surprising result. We all want to be happy. But Paul says in the text, there is a problem. He says, the problem is the days are evil. And if you look in verses 16 through 18, I want you to read that again with me. Follow the logic. Read it again. Redeem the time, the days are evil, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So the question is, where do you and I turn when the days are evil? Where do you turn? When you're upset, when you're angry, when you're frightened, when you're depressed, when you're stressed, when you're discouraged. Paul pleads, he says, don't turn to alcohol during these evil days, but rather, he says, turn to the Spirit. And he issues that in the form of a command. And let's camp out for a few minutes in verse 18, there where he says, don't be drunk with alcohol, but be filled with the Spirit. The word drunk, and I've shared this with you before, was a term, a word used in the first century referring to tanners, tanners. Tanners were tradesmen who made their living by working with animal skins, with hides. And they would make them useful for everyday purposes by taking a hide, a piece of leather, and would dip it into a vat of chemicals, whatever chemicals they used, whatever they had in those days. And they would soak them and work them in these heated vats of chemicals with the end result of the hides being clean and flexible, pliable, softened, ready to be fashioned into something. So the hide is dipped and soaked. It was pickled in this vat. That's the word that the New Testament uses here for drunk. In the case of the command for you and I as disciples, he says, do not be drunk but filled. And so the idea could be that to be filled with his Holy Spirit is to be soaked in the Spirit, to be dipped, to be pickled, if you will, in the Spirit continuously on a regular basis, not just once in a while, but on an ongoing process. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, not to be pickled with alcohol, for alcohol, when you're soaked in alcohol, it permeates and it controls to the point of altering behavior and 
When we're drunk, it alters words, it alters the way we think, it alters the way we react. Paul says there is a better way to cope with evil days. He says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Coming under the influence of the Holy and the control of the Holy Spirit, likewise, alters us. It controls us. Being soaked with the Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is the predominant influence of our life on a daily basis, changes, like alcohol, changes the way we think. It alters the way we behave. It changes the way we speak. It alters our actions because the dominant influencer is the Spirit of God. Don't you want that as a Christian for your life? Gosh, we, we relate to each other and so many times we say things and we do things and walk away and think and just really convicted by the Holy Spirit thinking, I really handled that poorly said some things, did some things that I regret, things that were sinful. It's because we're controlled by the flesh instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to notice the characteristics of being such or the end results of being filled with the Spirit. He, he describes those also in the text, and he basically says there's an inward change in us by the Spirit that produces or manifests itself in an outward faith, a way. Look at four things that he says. Just going to go through these very quickly, starting in verse 19. One of the characteristics of being filled with the Holy Spirit is speaking, he says in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms. Speaking, meaning his word, his truth, his perspective his perspectives are what begin to come out of our mouths. Do you speak the word? Uh, Tommy Walker is going to be with us here in a few, few weeks, really. It's coming up pretty close. And there's a song that he sings about speaking, speak the word, speak the word. And so one of the results of being filled with the Holy Spirit is we begin to share, speak the word of God to build up and edify others. Second in verse 20, he says, be thankful. Someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit will be someone who functions with a spirit of thanksgiving, giving thanks to God in all circumstances. That's hard to do, isn't it? Remember the, the story of Job and lost his wife and lost every one of his sons and daughters and lost all of his possessions, lost his home. You remember at the end of that, after losing all, he gives God thanks. It's kind of crazy. It's not a normal human response. It's a godly response, a response that is controlled by God. And it says he gives thanks, that he shaves his head, he tears his clothes, he falls to the ground, and the Bible says he gives thanks. He worships. He worships the Lord in the midst of that. It's a characteristic of being filled with the Spirit. Verse 21. The third thing is he talks about humbling ourselves, being submissive. Dying to self. And so one of the characteristics of being filled with the Holy Spirit is that I relinquish my rights, my preferences, in order to, for your preferences and for your rights. Doing those things that help build up and encourage and edify you instead of self. 
And so basically being filled with the Spirit will start being more sensitive to the needs of other people and living to bless them and serve them. And then finally in verse 19, he says, and then he, just, he talks about music here. And I, I do just would paraphrase this by saying there'll be a song, there'll be a melody playing in your soul. There'll be inward music that makes the heart merry. Hymns and spiritual songs are expressions of this inward life in the spirit, of being filled with the spirit. In other words, in other words, there'll be joy. Joy. Being filled with the spirit. Speaking the word. Sharing the word. That's what flows out of us. A heart of gratitude and thankfulness to God. Uh, dying to put the interests of other people before our own and lots of joy. Lots of joy. Being filled with the Spirit is characterized by those qualities. Pretty, did, pretty good description, I believe. Definitely characteristics of the Spirit-filled life. So if I had to provide a definition, a definition of what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit, I would simply say this. It has two, two parts to it. I would say being a life of being filled with the Spirit would be one of finding great joy in God. Great joy in God. And I'd say radiant joy. As John Piper describes it, the Spirit who fills us is the same Spirit of joy that flows between God the Father and between Jesus the Son. In the Trinity, our triune God delights in each other. Delights in the other. And there's joy that is shared there. And so to be filled with the Spirit is the same as being caught up into that divine joy, a joy that supersedes happiness based upon care, uh, the characteristics of things that we might be going through. And then the second emphasis is not only joy, radiant joy, but I would also say strength. The Spirit-filled life is one of radiant joy and strength. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 8, there's a verse, you may not know the reference, but most of you know the, vo the verse. It says, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We sing about that little, little kids growing up church. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And we just sing it over and over and over. That's from Nehemiah 10, 8. But isn't that true? Living with a sense and the reality of the joy of the Lord and experiencing his love and being sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, isn't that a strong way to live? Strength. A strong, spirit-filled disciple of Jesus will overcome besetting sins common recurring sins, and second, we'll find boldness in witnessing and talking about Jesus. So for application, are these spirit-filled characteristics true of you? Are they true of your life? Your mind is saturated with God's word. You're thankful. You desire to serve other people, to put their interests ahead of your own, and you would say on a daily basis, there's joy and strength in the Lord. 
I believe understanding this is a key to experiencing a victorious Christian life because it leads to growth and, again, overcoming sin and usefulness to God and a blessing to other people. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a command to be obeyed by all followers of Christ. It's a non-negotiable. It's a command resulting in a changed life, a life permeated with his word and thankfulness and the desire to put other people first, radiant joy and strength. Over the last couple of years, I've wondered when Mindy and I were raising our family when all the four kids were still living at home, I've looked back and I've wondered on several occasions, did they see radiant joy in their mom and dad and strength, the joy of the Lord being our strength? Well, I've always been thankful for God's call upon my life to serve as a pastor. I wonder, did the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit, radiate joy and strength from our lives that was seen in our kids. I'd like to think they would say yes. See, that's a a question worth considering for all of us. Mom, dad, in your home, are your kids growing up seeing joy in you and strength in you? All of us as disciples in the workplace, when our co-workers say, there's some joy and strength in that person among our neighbors, extended family members and relatives, even young people, kids in elementary school and junior high and high school, would, would your peers where you go to school say that there's, there's joy in you and strength in you? The big question, the practical question is how does this happen? How do you and I live spirit-filled lives? What's the path? What's the way to do that? And here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. This is a command. We are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but the problem, the challenge is we're not the fillers. We're not the fillers. We don't, we don't do the filling. I invite you to read with me John's Gospel, chapter 15. Begin reading with me starting in the first verse, because I think this is the path. This is the way to finding this command being obeyed in our lives. John 15. Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You, speaking to his disciples, are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
What a glorious promise. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. Before considering the path, the way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, just a few comments about this text. This is the last of the seven I am claims that John makes in the gospel. Jesus claims to be the bread of life. He claims to be the light of heaven. He claims to be the gate, the good shepherd, the resurrection, the truth, and the life. And here, the seventh, the last of his I am claims, he says, I am the vine. The vine in this scripture is Jesus. And the branches are you and me, and the Holy Spirit is the life or the sap that flows from the vine into the branches. The branch lives and produces by abiding in the vine, being connected in to the vine. That's, that's the main point of this whole text. If you go back and read before this and after, Jesus is trying to help the disciples to understand this one main point, to abide in him. I would add for clarity, Jesus is not teaching here that believers lose their salvation. Jesus is not teaching that if you don't abide and produce fruit, that he's going to cut you off. Rather, if you look at verse 2, he's describing two kinds of branches. One type of branch is the, that kind of branch that bears fruit. Those disciples who are alive, really describing disciples. And then the second kind of branch is really false disciples, dead disciples who really, those who bear no fruit, which really don't belong to him. Because you go down in verse 6, he says, these dead, lifeless, false branches are going to be gathered up and consumed at the judgment. They're not really disciples. They're not really life-giving, real true disciples of Christ. Notice, I want you to notice in this text six times Jesus uses the phrase, in me, in me, in me, in me. Those who are in me. There are some who appear to be saved, but they are not saved. They're not in Christ. And I would say that any Christian that never bears any fruit, fruit of the Spirit or fruit of witness, in any kind of fruit, then I would question whether they're a true disciple. That's the point. And so having said that, what's the path? What does this have to do with this command to be filled with the Spirit? Well, I believe to be filled with the Spirit, the pathway, the way to, for that to occur is to abide in Jesus, to abide in him. Consider how these verses work. How does the branch bear fruit? Not by effort, not by effort. Rather, a branch simply abides in the vine in silent, undisturbed union. As long as the branch is connected, as long as it abides, the result is there's going to be life. It'll blossom and grow and bear fruit. 
As Jesus sat teaching his disciples, they had to know something big was on the horizon because prior to this, Jesus keeps telling them he's going to leave them. He's going to depart. And up until this moment, this time, they had found their strength, their security from the presence of Jesus. But now the very thought of carrying on without him functioning without him must have seemed troubling and depressing to them. For earlier in John 14, he says, he just tells them, I'm going to leave you, but he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he goes on, and he, in the context of all of this, he talks about the Holy Spirit who come, that I'm, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. The Spirit will come. They struggled severely by being with Jesus. And so the idea of trying to function without him had to be very, very troubling, very frightening. But Jesus understood all this. So as he moved closer to the cross, he began to explain these things to them. Two of which are related to the being filled with the spirit is clear. One is Jesus expected his disciples then and today to bear fruit. Listen, to bear fruit. Not to produce fruit. Not to produce fruit, but to bear fruit. And there's a difference. And not just fruit, but if you read through the text, he says fruit, more fruit, much fruit, and fruit that remains. And he says this is how God is glorified. By us branches abiding in Christ, bearing much fruit. He also adds in verse 2, he prunes us. He's pruned. There's be pruning. The vine dresser, the father may do some pruning, some cutting away of things. What things? What might be some things that God prunes in our lives as disciples? Well, it could be any things that are contrary to his will. Anything contrary to his will. Anything that's become an idol. Anything that we put before him, he might prune. The point is for us to be more fruitful to be more focused on him. And so that's one thing. The second thing that's clear from this text is not only does he expect that his disciples will bear much fruit, but second, when Jesus calls us to do this, I think he's helping the disciples to see the reality of how impossible this is. How impossible it is. It's Listen, for you and I to bear fruit it's not just difficult. It's not just a struggle. It's not just hard. It's impossible. Look at verse 5. He says, for without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. He didn't say you can still do a little bit. He doesn't say you can do bear partial fruit. He says you can't bear any fruit at all. Apart from me and abide in me, you will produce nothing. If only Christ's church today would get this truth cemented in their minds. We as a church produce no fruit. And unless we're abiding in Christ, we'll bear no fruit. I shared this story with you several weeks ago about, weeks ago about an old college roommate that I had, and I remember we got into a little... <laughs> Uh, difficult, we, tusk, we, we got into it in the dorm room, and when it was all over, I remember Tim said to me, Charlie, I can't do it. 
I can't live for, I can't live for Christ. I've tried to live a Christian life and I cannot do it. And I didn't know what to say to him then, but I would know what to say to him today. And I would say, Tim, you're exactly right. You and I cannot live the Christian life apart from Christ, apart from him. Why did Jesus tell his disciple this? I think he told them this because, yes, it's true. But more than that, Jesus knew his disciples' tendencies, and he knows your tendency, and he knows mine. And that tendency is for all of us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to take matters into our own hands, to to do things, and just to try to serve Christ on our own, on our own strength, on our own power, and just do and go and work and serve and labor and toil in and on our own strength, And I would be the first to say to you, I'm all about work and working hard. But Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, the spirit-filled life is different. It's one of abiding in me. How does the branch bear fruit? Look at verses 4 through 6. Not by effort. Not by effort. It simply abides in silent, undisturbed union. It's just there, abiding in Jesus. And the result is there is life. And growth. You remember in the book of Galatians, Paul contrasts the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And for many of us, I think we're trying to work the deeds of the Spirit. We get it reversed. The lesson is the vine does all the work. The fruit is a byproduct of the abiding. Sap flows from the vine into the branch, thus giving and bringing forth life. It's what Paul meant, I think, in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live today, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I who does it. It's not I who lived. It's Christ living and flowing through me. And so the victorious spirit-filled life is one of being soaked in the spirit daily, regularly. How? By abiding in Jesus and being strengthened with joy and fruit. Abiding in Christ. Are you abiding in Christ? Say, how how do you abide in Christ? Where do I start? I would say this. The first step is to come to Christ. You can't abide in Christ if you're not connected to him. And so the first step would be, if you're not sure you're a Christian, if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith in the person and the work of Christ, the first step would be to come to Christ and then stand publicly in a baptismal pool to stand publicly and declare to everyone that you've died to self, that you're living a new life by faith. A new life in Christ Jesus, making your faith public, coming to Christ, declaring him publicly would be the first step. And the second would be that you and I abide in him. And you hear this, you've heard this, you know this, in prayer and in his word. In prayer and his word, setting the mind of our sails on the winds of the Holy Spirit on a daily basis. Third would be to surround yourself with other saints, connecting with other believers, developing community. I cannot 
encourage you enough to begin to connect with other believers, to develop spiritual community. One of the reasons that many of you are not as fruitful as you need to be is you're not connected. Some of you men are not connected to any other men. Some of you women are not connected to any other spiritual sisters in Christ because you, you still think that you can do all this on your own, that you don't need community. You don't have time for community. You've got time for everything else. And... I will just throw this out for your consideration. If you've got it so good and you've got it all together spiritually where you don't need other brothers and sisters in Christ, then guess what? Those other brothers and sisters in Christ need you if you've got it that wired. They need you. You could be a great blessing to other people. Community, connected. And then fourth, worship. To worship the Lord. To worship Him. Hillcrest, we're not bearers. We're not producers, we're bearers. The Holy Spirit brings forth life. He brings the fruit. He's a change agent, and he desires to change you. And I'll say this to you, and you, you already know this, but generally when we're going through trials and difficulties in our life, that's when God's working in us the most. And we don't like it, and it's painful, and it's difficult, and we want to get to the other side. We want to get through it. And by God's grace, we will get through it one way or the other. He's going to get us to the other side. But when we're going through those trials and those difficult times of our lives, God's Spirit is at work in us, bringing change, bringing forth new fruit, teaching us, teaching us to abide in Christ, to depend on Him. That's what He wants from us. That's what He wants, that's what he wants from the church. To abide in him. If we'll abide in him, he'll do, he'll do everything that needs to be done. But if we don't abide in him and we think that we're going to get done everything that needs to be done, then Jesus says in verse 5, it won't work. For apart from me, you'll accomplish nothing. Let me close with you a verse, Romans 15, 13. It's related to this. May now may the God of hope, may the God of hope, how many of you are hopeful? May the God of hope fill you with all joy in the Holy Spirit, all peace in the Holy Spirit by faith. May the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace, and believing through the Spirit so that you may abound with hope, that you may abound with hope more and more. Let me pray with you.